0: Welcome to Soundstage Insider, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the film and television industry. We're bringing you the visionary directors and producers, the talented cinematographers, editors, sound designers and more who really make the magic happen. We delve deep into their stories, their struggles and their triumphs. So let's go beyond the red carpet and discover a fascinating world of behind the scenes talent. hello welcome to today's episode of soundstage insider this is part two of this week's special two episode week focusing on editing now this is the third editing episode we've done in recent times the first one was only murders in the building which was kind of a thriller mystery slash comedy uh, the second was a few days ago with Kelly Dixon and Josh Earle, and we were talking about Obi-Wan Kenobi, so sci-fi and drama and action, and today we are talking comedy, more specifically History of the World Part 2 from the brilliant mind of Mel Brooks and his writing team, and today we're very lucky to be joined by the editing duo of Stephanie Philo and George Mandel. So we talk a lot about editing comedy in particular, but also their individual editing styles and some of the work that they've done before they got to this point, including Steph's work on Dharma, which was fascinating and such an extraordinary performance from everyone on that production. So rather than tell you about the episode, why don't we just get on and listen to it? So here's my interview with Steph Philo and George Mandel talking about History of the World Part 2. Okay, so I'm excited to be talking to Steph and George today. We are going to kick off by finding out how you guys started in this industry, because we've got a lot of people who are aspiring to work in the film and TV world listening to this. And so I'd love to hear how you both started. So Steph, do you want to kick us off?
1: Sure. Sure. Um, So when I was like in high school or middle school, I saw the movie Seven, which I probably should not have been watching at the time. But I fell in love with the um, opening title sequence for that movie. I was just like, it's interesting that like there's no dialogue, nothing, but you learn so much about the story in it. And so I kind of just played around with my like home movie camera and like my VHS tapes just to see like what I could what stories I could tell, not realizing that that was editing. Like, I didn't know that that was a career path or something that you could do. Um, And so, you know, I moved out to L.A. I was a dancer originally, like I wanted to get into film and TV, but I didn't know in what capacity. So I kind of just knocked on every door I could find when I got out here. And I was working um, part time at Smashbox Studios, which is a photography studio, but they rent out um, space in the back. So they had a production that was doing like a French documentary at the time. And they just happened to mention like, oh, we're looking for a night assistant editor. Is that something you might be interested in? And I was like, yeah, please, of course. Um, So I started on that project and very quickly realized that's kind of what I was doing in high school, like what I was playing around with. And that's what editing is. And realized that this was like a career path I could pursue. So just from there, I kind of just kept, you know, kept working and kept working my way up. And then landed here.
0: Love that. Great. What about you, George?
2: Um, well, like Steph, I, I, uh, without the seven component, I, <laughs> I, went, um, around town where I grew up in the Boston area, um, with my parents high camcorder and used it and abused it and, and made all sorts of little videos that only had like in-camera editing. Cause I didn't know that there was a way to take tape and make it into different things other than what you had shot. I didn't grow up around any kind of filmmakers, and when I got to college, I took a um, at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. I took a video production class, and in doing that, we were we were given cameras. We were we were told to to uh, write scripts. We were told to we were told to um, do everything. You know, it was just it was just here's here's a video camera, go make something, and you know. So we partnered up and. I made a couple uh, short films there, and on my my second short film, I decided that I wanted to do something experimental. So I just shot a bunch of stuff that I, I had a theme, and I don't want to get into it, but because it, it's terrible. But um, uh, go on. I just oh, wanted I'm interested to, get, to hear. <laughs> I I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> you really
1: know we're bad. like? Hmm.
2: It's like one of those like you know if you think about like '90s coffee shop artwork it's like the video equivalent of that gotcha
0: yeah right
2: best to move on but uh the what happened with that was that i i did that because i wanted to get into the editing as quickly as possible i, I it was my first time using avid and it was all new to me and once i started moving these pieces around and figuring out the power of reordering stuff you know moving from wide shots to close ups you know all the all the different shot sizes um how music plays into it how sound design plays into it and dialogue, I mean, at this, this particular film did not have dialogue on purpose, but something just kind of clicked in my head in that moment, it was like, you know, like a switch was turned on. And so I moved to LA and what I did when I got here was, which I think is a great thing for anyone who's moving to Los Angeles to get into any facet of the film industry, um, make a list of everyone you know who's in Los Angeles and everyone who they know who's in Los Angeles and try to network as much as you can with those people and be completely shameless about it. Because everyone here is used to being asked these kinds of questions. Um, And I did this and I was fortunate enough to get involved in a independent film called He's Such a Girl, directed by Sean Carr. And it was edited by a great editor who is now a close friend of mine named Julie Rogers. And Julie and I kind of worked together on the editing and then she had to leave. Um, but then later on she ended up hiring me on my first union film which was um as her assistant which was called cats and dogs the revenge of kitty galore and it was a talking animals film with um you know all sorts of uh, just a great cast and um it was a huge learning experience for me i got to you know go to the warner lot and we worked out of like a fake suburban house that was our cutting room um and from there i just met more and more people and one thing led to another and now I'm sitting here talking to you.
0: It's all been worth it. Yeah. (laughs) It's so funny because I've spoken to a couple of editors recently and they've sort of had a similar story in terms of it wasn't necessarily their dream from day dot to become an editor, but the moment they found it, they were like, this is the thing. This is what I really want to spend my life doing. Um, And I've asked both of these people, uh, all three of them, this question. I'm interested to hear your perspective. Are editors born or are they made? what would you say?
1: That's a a a deep question. Yeah,
0: I know. We're going in hard.
1: (laughs) It's like nature versus nurture. Yeah, yeah.
0: go first, (laughs) (laughs) Steph.
1: Wow. I mean, I think that there's a certain part of our brains that just we're born with, but somehow this is what we maybe gravitate towards. Um, You know, a lot of people are like, oh, you were a professional dancer before you were an editor. How does that work? And I honestly think it's also the same part of, The brain because you're kind of telling a story there's like pacing involved there's you know music picture like all these things kind of tied together and it's I think we all kind of like solving puzzles in a way if that makes sense and that's maybe like a rambly way to answer that but I think I think we all kind of maybe have that same desire to like shape a story in a way because you know for us you know editing is like the final rewrite of any script you know it's we're kind of giving the finishing touches and trying to like honor what what the intention was in our edits so i think i'd say we're born with it obviously like we nurture it over the years but i do think it's like you know there's some maybe there's some unique personality trait we all have that i haven't (laughs) haven't identified yet but I don't know. I'd say we're maybe born with it and, and obviously learn as we go.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think I think she nailed it. Um, the you could say that we're born with it, but if nobody is if you're not unlocking what's there, you're not gonna become an editor. There is a lot to learn. And I, I've I've met editors who are very, very, very talented and very good at it, like right off the bat. Like they it's almost like how did you Like you don't even seem like you're trying or working that hard, but they're just like great and they're successful. And other people who are equally as great, but are not as successful, they, they maybe grind away for 15 years as an assistant editor. They just don't get those opportunities as easily. And, you know, I think that everyone has a different path at this and, and anyone who is doing it, I think is born with some instinct to do this, but they don't always all, you know, walk through the same doors. That's such a cheesy way of saying it, but like they, they don't, everyone is presented with different situations throughout their careers. And, and some people, you know, you might land with, like, we got to work with Nick Kroll and Ike Barinholtz, Wanda Sykes, Dave Stassen, you know, and, and oh, and Mel Brooks. Um, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. we are fortunate. I recognize that we as editors are fortunate to have that as an opportunity. You know, if, if we were the editors that we are that didn't have that opportunity, we would be working on something else, and you know, it may not, we may not be in yeah. the position we are.
0: It was so funny because everyone has mentioned music and rhythm as, as such an important part, and also taste. How important is taste in your day-to-day, minute-to-minute work? I mean, everything is, why would you cut it here versus here? It's kind of hard to define, right? But taste probably informs that. Is that correct?
2: I feel like
1: you can kind of feel it in your gut when something's like correct or not, or if it's working or not. Like I know something I do a lot is like I build out alts where I'm like, okay, this is like, this is what it is written as or what it's supposed to be. Here's like another way that we could approach it and just try it, like test out a bunch of different options and see kind of where I land. Or if there's like a something in the middle where you can pick from each. Yeah. I don't know. I guess, I don't know if I would call that like taste versus like just tr- <laughs> trial and error, for lack of a better word. But <laughs> I think it's, you know, once it's right, you can feel it. So if that's taste, then absolutely.
0: Do you think that's what gives your editing a personal style? Do you do you think you have a, a style to your editing? Or would 10 do the same thing if given the um, same footage?
1: I mean, I think that's what's exciting about our job is that, you know, if George and I had the exact same dailies, we would probably cut something In totally different ways like it's kind of an exciting exciting aspect of post in my opinion so i don't know i don't know if i have a personal style george you can maybe speak to whether i do or not (laughs) but i feel like i think it's like important for us as editors to kind of be versatile and you can like see like oh this would be cut in this style let me try this out and see what what pieces you can you can kind of play with from there
2: yeah absolutely and i mean with, with this show in particular we had so many formats and genres that we were parodying. You know, we had, you know, a housewife sketch. We had, um, various fig commercials. You know, we had, we had Amelia Earhart, um, in a bar called the Bermuda Triangle, you know, talking about that. Um, you know, we had heavy improv, all a la curb your enthusiasm. I mean, it was just, and we had musicals, big musical numbers. And so each one of those things required us to sort of like dig into different tastes and different. Uh, bits of our experience and, um, and sort of harness those tools that we have to sort of treat the sketch with whatever it needed. So we had to be, we had to be pretty versatile in that way. And it was a lot of listening to the, you know, you know, listening to what the footage felt like it needed when we got it. Particularly with, with heavy improv, you know, you get these, these scripts and you read the script and you laugh and you go, this is going to be great. And then you learn that like, you know, Josh Gad's going to be Shakespeare, and you're like, "Oh my god, that's going to be great." And then Josh Gad comes in and has all this stuff that wasn't in the script, and you're like, "Oh my god, what do I do with this?" And you have to be flexible as as you get this stuff and and work with it. And you're trying to tell the story that's there, but you're using the ingredients that are both in the script and and that were never written.
1: I think it's a testament to to like the strength of this team as well, because I think we all collectively would kind of watch each other's work and give thoughts and you know we all have such different backgrounds that it was like a cool chance to like be versatile and like what we were cutting and like if say George had a different idea for something it's like oh cool let me try that out um you know it was just every day every day trying to figure out what the best approach to making this kind of like versatile show was.
0: And yeah we're talking about history of the world part two, and it was it's a hilarious show and you do a, an amazing job with the editing and yeah, you mentioned it already the fact that it is just one genre, one style after the next jumping all over the place so how was it organized did you each episode did you work on the whole thing did you break up each scene for different people like how how was that organized
2: I think we we received sort of assignments as the dailies came in. Our our post-producer, Trish Hadley, was able to sort of see what was coming in and say, ah, this is kind of a, this is a Curb Your Enthusiasm sketch. George, you do it because you've done the league. It was really fun to see all this footage come in and these different sketches. Um, there were poles, which were these longer sketches a la History of the World Part One. We called them poles. They were these sort of 20-minute more narrative pieces. It was the Russian revolution, the civil war, um, the story of Jesus and Shirley Chisholm, which was our multicam sitcom, you know? And, um, we decided at a certain point to break those up into smaller pieces and kind of distribute them throughout the season in and around the shorter sketches, you know, things like Freud as a masterclass or, um, you know, or Shakespeare or, uh, you know, the Alexander Graham Bell sketch, you know, we, we decided to pepper these things around in, in the... We, well, we had, we had a board, we had a big board and the board had note cards on it. Each one was a sketch. And this is something that writers do all the time when they're, when they're, you know, working on scripts and breaking stories, they, they move bits and pieces around and try to figure out what makes sense. We did the same thing with our sketches. And so we would, we would stand in front of this board with our eps and kind of move the cards around and figure out where, where, where they flowed and how we would get the most, most humor out of each episode. And overall, um, you know how how far was too far to break up the Russian Revolution from one episode to the next, and what would feed into it the best, and and also just to keep the variety of every episode. In you know, we this is a true variety show. We have everything, and so we're trying to find that balance throughout the season. And it definitely was a moving target. We were changing it
0: all the time. It reminds me of. Um... Talking to an editor called Peggy Tashtian, who edited Only Murders in the Building and Drinking, she's great. She's so nice. It's
1: one of my Uh, favorite people. I love her.
0: Yeah, she's lovely. And she started out in unscripted, and the way she was describing unscripted was very similar to that. So, in your experience in that world, was that helpful for this project? Would you say?
1: Yeah, I think it's like monumentally helpful because you know, in unscripted world, you're kind of like, you're basically like creating moments that don't exist all the time and you're tracking a story from start to end there might be different character arcs or story beats that you're like i need to hit this but i don't have the footage for it how can i create this you know i think that also is very similar to like how you would approach like improv in sketches where it's like this is absolutely not something that was written the continuity does not match because you know it's improv so it's like you kind of have to find ways to make it make sense in the story that the way it was written and also find ways to, like, also land the joke, too, where you're like, this is hilarious, but I don't know where, is is there a home for it? Maybe I slide it somewhere else. So I think for something like this, it's, like, super helpful having kind of an unscripted background. Um, Same with, like George was saying, the cards, moving cards around and being like, okay, I think this is how this is going to make this story pop. This is going to, you know, this might help if we do this for Russian Revolution, or if we do this for the story of Jesus, just kind of maybe thinking outside of the box a little.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like you guys were given quite a lot of freedom to create. Like it wasn't micromanaged for you and you had all that freedom. How was that collaborative process with production and people like Mel Brooks or Nick Kroll or people like that?
2: They were incredibly effusive when they saw our first cuts. I think for, for them, they were so wrapped up in production that, they don't know what they're gonna get, you know. They it's not on uh, not about us so much, but about what they shot. And you know, they they they're aware of things on set that were problems, and we come in and we fix them. <laughs> so when they get these like scenes, they're not they're not ready to to air or anything. But when they get these scenes, they they go, oh my god, it, it's work. It worked, you know. It needs some tweaks or whatever, but it, it's good. They were um they were they were so pleasant to work with and so um trusting of us and our abilities. It functioned like, it functioned like kind of being in the improv group with them a little bit. There was a lot of like back and forth collaboration. It wasn't, there were no, you know, Hey, I don't like this. You never got that. You got, you know, Hey, what if we did this? And that kind of Mm. was the vibe. I think we were all in this headspace of, we're making a Mel Brooks project. We shouldn't screw it up. Let's, let's all work together to not screw it up. And so, so that was, that was really, really cool. I mean, um, all the, all the EPs were, were, were so wonderful to work with, you know, Nick Kroll, Ike Barinholtz, Wanda Sykes, and David Stassen. They, you know, they were, they were so, um, they were just so lovely. I don't know.
1: Yeah. And something also that was so cool is like, they're all from such different styles of comedy, I feel like. So it was almost like You know there's when I think back to like the Freud sketch for example there's so many versions of it where it's like okay this is my version here's like when I worked with Wanda like here's a version of it here's like an Ike version so there were so many different like passes at it to find like the final kind of cohesive thing that made everybody you know it like appealed to all the different styles and I think that kind of happened with all of our sketches it was like a cool way to just be like okay here's like here's a different way to approach this that's like also really hilarious you know like all of the versions were just cool because you know they the takes every take was just hilarious so it was a really cool experience in that sense
0: well speaking to that and this is probably really hard to define for you guys because you know you do what you do but specifically editing comedy are there conventions for that is it purely feel like and again we're jumping genres a lot of the time so obviously there's different conventions per genre so is there anything that you can give advice-wise for people that want to edit in this broad genre of comedy?
1: I think just practice everything, like practice all the styles or like watch, as, like consume as much content like as you can. I'm sure all parents everywhere are like, don't tell my kids that, <laughs> but um, like just consume, consume as much as you can, because in a way I feel like that's what helps on a show like this, where you're like, okay, tomorrow... I have to cut a sketch that's like a masterclass. Let me look at other masterclass videos and see what conventions they use and how you can kind of like flip that on its head in a sense. You're like, how do I make this funny? So I'd say for like a variety show, it's almost like figure out what all these different styles are and how you can like, it's like the element of surprise, like flip a switch in a sense to make it comedic. Right. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. And if you're gonna work on History of the World Part Two, watch all of Mel Brooks's movies because there are references strewn about that if you don't know their if you don't know their references, you're not gonna to know to use them. But yeah, I think I agree with everything uh you said, Steph, that that just consuming, you know, movies and shows and, and understanding the references and understanding what it is that we're parodying is is pretty crucial. I also think that like when you're turning it on its head, what is making you laugh? You know, what is the thing that's making you laugh while you're doing it? I, I don't know if you do this stuff, but I when I have heavy improv, I actually will like make little notes about what jokes I like and like on my first watch so that when I've watched it 50 times, I can go back and remember, oh yeah, that was the one that made me laugh the hardest when I first watched it. That's an important step for me, at least. Um, I don't know. if.
1: Yeah, I do that, too. But I, I um, what I end up doing is like I make a select sequence and then like the ones that make me laugh the most. I like like my LMAO improvs. I'll put like two or three levels higher and like kind of almost like like um, gauge which which things are the funniest by like just what what video track I have it on, which is also that's probably the nerdiest thing ever. But <laughs> I'm, like, here's my here's my select. Wait, of OK, follow up
2: question. <laughs> do you name your tracks LMAO?
1: No, <laughs> I probably should, but I, um, I just, I think I just have been doing it for so long. I'm like, here's my, this is my the one that's LMAO higher up. Is better.
2: Yeah, I do. I do something similar yeah. with my selects too, but I also like, I don't know, sometimes there's so much stuff and sometimes I like to just watch and I don't want to touch the computer while I'm watching. I just want to watch and like, just take it in. Maybe at the most I'll like press the locator button, but I yeah. don't want to start like cutting and moving while I'm watching.
0: I know in acting that they often say in comedy that the more you play it as earnestly as possible, the funnier it is because the make it makes it more ludicrous. Is there a similar thing in editing that you play it really straight and then the ludicrousness of the situation makes it funnier rather than trying to play for the laugh?
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I personally, and it, it depends on what you're making, I find that the funniest comedy comes from the most grounded situations. So if you can find real characters and relate to them and then something insane happens, that's going to make you laugh more than if they are like a cartoon.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, cause, cause those are, those are the moments that we remember in comedy. You know, it's, it's, it's those situations. Um, uh, you know, history of the world part two you could say it gets a little cartoony from time to time, but I think that's okay in this world because we're talking about a, Mo- a Mel Brooks show and and we do still have some real characters, I-, I would say.
1: Even some of our cartoony moments like are still played kind of earnestly. It's like, this is just this like weird situation that happened or this kid, ca- you know, because I think, you know, it's obvious sometimes when you're watching comedy that. It's like, oh, these extra, you know, extra things were thrown in just to be over the top. Or you can tell if it's like, oh, this is supposed to be funny or it's telegraphing something. So I do yeah. think like even with our cartoony moments, it's like I think we had kind of like an earnest, like grounded approach to cartoony, if that makes sense. Or...
0: Yeah, absolutely. Do you have to be careful like how much you review something so that you still find it funny? Because, you know, if you hear a joke three times, it starts to like not be funny anymore. Right. So are you very careful about that
1: on a show like this something that's helpful is like we're getting dailies constantly so it's like we cut something we have kind of our editor's cut of of it and then we're automatically into something else it's almost like you have a little bit of time like breathing room between the editor's cut and when you come back to it for notes so it's like you're looking at it again with fresh eyes
0: right yeah
2: that is that is super helpful and yeah like on a on a normal half hour show you know you're kind of with the characters the same characters and the same dailies and on this it's like the weather is just changing every five minutes you know you're not you're not embedded in one season arc of a story for example you know you're 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 just kind of hopscotching around and i think like as Steph said like yeah you you do have a little buffer between when you do what you feel is your best editor's cut and when you come back to work with the director producers
0: and it sounds like to me in television, you have much less time to overthink things, right? It's much faster turnaround than in film,
1: yeah. we have each other we have each other too to kind of like weigh in weigh in on things with too. So it's like, George, is this still funny? Do you find this funny? Is this new piece yurking? So it's like we can at least, you know, lean on each other a little bit.
0: Let's become a little more broad now in terms of general editing. I really love hearing about how editor's pick takes. I heard once that, I think this was for film, and I don't know whether this is true, but Al Pacino supposedly gives seven different performances for each take and just says, right, editor, you do your thing, like you, you sort of compose this performance. Uh, Do you like it when actors give you a full range and a a whole bunch of different versions? Or or what are the criteria? Is it purely feel when you're picking something? Or what is your process when selecting from multiple takes?
1: I mean, I love when I have like multiple variations of something. It's nice to have stuff to play around with. To me, I usually figure out what the like lens I'm approaching the scene from. You know, if I'm like, okay, this needs to be more grounded or, oh, this needs to be like more emotional here. Like, I'll start there and then just pick the takes that kind of give me that give me whatever that lens is I'm trying to reach and then kind of watch back and see if all these takes kind of feel like they're in the same tone. Um, Sometimes they don't. And like, just, you know, (laughs) at first glance, you're like, oh, this will do. This will do. And you go back in and realize, like, okay, this is not the like tone that I was actually going for. So you can kind of go in and pepper in different different variations.
2: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. It's always about, you know, what performance is serving the point of the scene and then the story overall, you know, the, in our world, the episode and actors and directors do tend to give a range. Um, you know, it's funny though, in, in what we do, and at least in what I do a lot of there, there is just tons of improv. And so sometimes it's just like, you know, you might have, you might have this great improv that doesn't do anything for the story and is, is in fact getting in the way of the story, even in it, even though it comes from the best place, you know, it's, and it's hilarious. You have to be kind of responsible about, um, about taking out things that don't work, whether or not they are making you fall out of your chair laughing, you know, cause they, they just, it, it's, it's like you're in my, in my world with improv, I'm surrounded by these brilliant minds all day long I'm listening to them come up with things and I'm like just blown away how did you come up with that how did you how did your mind go there and it's so funny and I put it in the cut because I love it in the moment and then by the time I'm done with the scene I'm like oh god that is that's a bonus feature you know (laughs) it doesn't doesn't belong here I, I love it so much and it pains me but I have to take it out
0: we get a fair amount of actors listening to this as well, so I, I'm really intrigued to hear your perspective on this. Are there things that actors do that drive you crazy <laughs> that you prefer they don't do from an editor's standpoint?
1: I feel like usually the thing that I get frustrated about is if, like a uh, you know like a line or a take will happen and then like almost immediately like it's cut. That's not so much on the actors; it's more like just in general, like sometimes on shows or movies, like, they'll get through the lines and then boom, like, cut immediately. But I love when there's the opportunity to have, like, at least a few more seconds afterwards where you're, like, living in it. Because, you know, a lot of times what you need is, like, a reaction or you need just, like, an extra beat to, like, process what you've just watched. So I always like when there's maybe just, you know, even just a few more seconds at the end. And that's, sorry, that's not necessarily acting related. It's just kind of, I feel like something that's helpful. And I feel like for actors, that's probably also helpful when they have a few extra moments to to live in that
2: scene. Yeah. I have a I have a great tip for comedy actors who want to have their face on camera more. Here's what you do. Stop pausing. You yep. pause <laughs> in the middle of a joke. I have to cut away from you because the rhythm is off. I need to keep things tight and fast. And if you can deliver that, line quickly and in a funny way, I won't have to cut away from you and I prefer not to cut away from you. Um, but I'll do it if I have to, you know? Um, and I, I, I would love lines to be nice and tight and, and then do your pausing at the beginning and the end of them and give me some action at the beginning and end of them that I can work with to, to make a nice cut. Because what you find, if you do those pauses, the editor has to cut away from you and maybe can come back to you and maybe can't. And I always want to be on your face for the punchline. I don't want to be on a reaction shot for a punchline. It's less funny.
0: Yeah. Steph, you're, you're nodding throughout that whole
1: thing. <laughs> Strongly agree. <laughs>
0: Strongly agree. <laughs> yeah, Peggy Peggy Tashjian said exactly the same thing. Yeah, she said the same thing. Like long pauses or any kind of pause in the middle of a line, I'm like, I'm out. Yeah. You know? Mm. Yeah. Um. So what happens when you're reviewing the content and you don't think you got the take right you've got they need to go and do something else it
1: kind of depends probably on the project like sometimes you have the ability to be like you know what i don't have this can you guys shoot this or pick it up sometimes on projects you know you don't have that that luxury so you know i think that's where you know having like either an unscripted background or just being able to think outside the box is helpful. Where you kind of almost have to create a moment that's not there. Um, yeah. And to me, you know, going back to what I said before, like that's kind of where having extra beats at the end of of scenes, you know, is helpful because sometimes you need to cut away to someone or you need to try to like build out a longer pause or build out something to make the joke land or to make the scene land. So.
2: Yeah, I, I definitely agree that it's project to project. You know, on, on a feature shoot, you tend to have pickups built into your budget and you can rely on that at a certain point, you know, uh, you know, barring it's, you know, with an Al Pacino or something like that in the scene. You know, you, you can go back and get stuff. With half-hour comedies, sketch comedies, I think we did, kind of think with History of the World, we did do one pickup at the Russian Revolution train station. And that was something that, You know, I had cut together and I said, hey, I don't know if we're back. I kind of worded it very nicely. I said, I don't know if we're going back there. And if we are, would it be possible to wedge in, you know, an hour at this train station and get a couple shots? And, you know, fortunately it was Nick Kroll and it was our sort of our main cast. Um, And our director, Alice Mathias said, oh, I'm so glad you said that. I missed a couple shots and I want to, I want to get them. So now we are both saying that, so we're going to do it. You know, and it was it was fortunate that she agreed, but, you know, you just have to I think you just have to be very you have to really need the shots and you have to word it in a um in a way that is in the interest of just making the best show possible.
0: Thinking back over both of your guys careers, have you ever had a performance that is just stopped you in your tracks while you're editing
1: um well evan peters and dahmer was the most incredible like actor i think i've ever had the opportunity to cut he became that character he gave so many different um different variations of what a scene could be like he just knew he knew that character he's very method as well so he was so like the minute the camera starts rolling like you're looking at Jeffrey Dahmer. And I think, you know, editorially for all of us, it was like just a heavy experience because it was like we're so immersed in this world. And he was so, so convincing that I would say that's like that's a performance that like without question stopped me in my tracks. Cause I just, you know, I knew he was gonna play Jeffrey Dahmer. I was like, he's a great actor. But the minute I saw him, I was like, this is is <laughs> gonna be a heavy experience. But I just I was like, he's so just incredible
0: yeah that was that was an extraordinary performance yeah anything for you george that that you you can remember i mean it's
2: it's hard to i don't know what you call this it's not quite it is acting um but i got a chance to work with sasha baron cohen at one point on who is america and i you know i was like oh my god i can't believe i'm working with sasha baron cohen it was like a it was like my, my 22 year old self was very excited. You know, I grew I was, I was all into like Ali G back in the late nineties, yeah. early aughts. And, um, you know, and, and Borat before he was like the mega success that he is today. So you know, this was, this was really cool. Um, you know, and, uh, who is America had all these different, these different characters, you know, he couldn't do Borat and Ali G anymore because everyone knew who they were. So he's doing, you know, uh, this. God, what was it, Dr, Dr. Naira Kane-Begicello, who is this like ultra liberal arts college professor who has decided that he's going to um, go to this sort of like healing center and do what he calls, um, the sketch was called Empathetic Birth. So he's he's been you know carrying this doll in him for a long time, you know, not, you know, obviously not really, but this healer thinks that he's helping him birth this doll, uh, out of his rear. And I, I was like, I don't understand how this man can keep this together. I, it was like, so <laughs> insane and shocking and like disgusting. And I was like, how is he? But he's so, um, he's so good. He's just so good at keeping himself in character in these in these real-world situations, whether you know whether it's being around um, Dick Cheney or giving birth to a doll,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's method and a half, isn't it? Really doing what he does. Something to be more. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Um, so, as we're wrapping up here, what is your advice for those looking to get into the world of editing?
1: I think, I mean, for me, something that's always been really important to me is like knowing knowing who different editors are, like what they work on, and just being familiar with, um, familiar with, with who they are. So, you know, every movie that I watch, every TV show, I always look at who edited it and just try to get a feel for like what types of things people are doing, you know, sometimes trying to reach out to them on social media, which sounds, you know, sounds absurd, but some of my like best friends that I've made have been just, you know, editors that I've loved their work and like followed them on Instagram or something. Um, So I would say just, you know, don't be afraid to like kind of shoot your shot, (laughs) I guess. Just, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to other editors. I think, you know, I may be biased, but I think all of us are usually pretty nice and like excited to meet other editors and like nerd out about editing. So I would say just, you know, anyone interested in the field, maybe just don't be afraid to reach out to reach out to people who whose work you like or who might be able to kind of give you advice on how to get get in that path.
2: Yeah,
0: love that. What about you, George?
2: Well, all of that. Also, um, I think editors tend to get sort of shoehorned into a category of what they can and can't do, right? And it's it's kind of a double-edged sword because you want to be the person that, like, Nick Kroll goes to for his sketch show. But by doing that, I mean, Steph, you don't count because you're you're doing this already. But, like, by doing that, you might alienate yourself from, you know, a doing like The Bear or doing a Star Trek or something. So what I would say to, to young editors looking to get into it is to figure out like your top two or three genres and formats, you know, feature film, sci-fi, you know, Housewives reality show, whatever it is, find your two or three things that you think are like the things that you gravitate towards that you would like to work in. And try to meet as many editors in those genres as you can and just keep cutting like even if you're an assistant or an apprentice or a post pa find things to cut you have to keep cutting even when it's like not your current job because you will get your shot and when you do you don't want to be rusty you want to be able to like hit grand slams you know and that's how you get noticed and that's how that's how people will eventually hire you to be an editor you know, I have found myself in comedy and I love it. I I do think I'd like to try some other stuff and I've done some other stuff, but not that much. I think I've I've really sort of like planted my flag in the world of comedy television. But I will say for those that, that feel like they would like to get into comedy television, it's a fun place to work. It's really fun. And you get to work with like really great people and you get to laugh all day. Um, uh, Steph, I don't think I could cut Dahmer because I don't think I could like watch that footage all day. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you do it was, it.
1: Yeah. It was an experience, but I mean, you'll also notice like I bookended Dahmer with two comedies. So, <laughs> you know, like I needed to bounce back and forth. Otherwise, you know, I don't think that's another thing as editors that I don't think people talk about enough is like, we spend so many hours a day with this footage, you know, it's like, you just have to be working on something that you care about and also something that, you know. Like George was saying, like it's it's easy to get stuck in one one thing or another, but it's it's good to be able to just you know, you know what you like, you know what stories you want to tell, and just you know, keep pushing to pushing to tell them.
0: <laughs> I know we got to wrap this, but are you are you going home at night dreaming of these edits? This footage is, is do you have to really like somehow like separate?
1: <laughs> I had to like I had to yeah I had to create like a separation because I. Like for a long time, I was like, I would go home, just like look at reread emails or just like think through stuff. And I had to like take my work email off of my phone. And like, I was like, <laughs> I'm just gonna, like, when I go home, I need to try to, to separate, but it's hard. Yeah.
2: This, this yeah. actually ties into another thing I would like to say to young editors, which is take care of your bodies. It's so hard yeah. on bodies to sit in these chairs all day long. And when you're in the thick of it, you're, you're in the flow and you're not thinking about how long it's been since you sat down that's when you start like kind of jacking yourself you know I, I have a friend who just threw out his back i have thrown out my back i people i i know all sorts of editors with like who are experienced editors great editors but they as they get older they start to have health problems and it's because we are very tough on our bodies in this job and so i you know i recommend like exercise and yoga and like getting a standing desk all that stuff i mean you have to be able to sort of like step away from it whether it's at the end of your day or you know in the middle of your day whatever it is you, you have to find ways to balance all the sitting and staring at screens because you're not going to be good if you're just doing that yeah. yeah
1: and therapy as well because it's like we're sitting like it's so much mental labor that you're doing when you're cutting anything for 12 plus hours a day like yeah
2: It's a million micro decisions every day. When we turn over a show, when we're done with it, we, we turn over something called an edit decision list. (laughs) It literally is a list of all the cuts and it goes off to the finishing house. And like all those decisions came from us over the course of the months that we worked on the show. It's a lot. It's a, it's a, it's a big job.
0: Well, on that note, that's Fascinating! Thank you so much for the time you spent today and for the advice you've given. Um, it's really, really interesting, and I know our listeners are going to get a huge amount out of it. So, thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Jamie. Thank you for having. Me.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. A special thanks of course to Steph and George for talking to us today about History of the World Part 2. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we are SoundstageIn on Twitter slash X and Soundstage Insider on Instagram. My name's Jamie Muffett and this was an RPS audio production. See you next time.